Hey, welcome to Elections Dailies Beyond the Spin After Hours. Uh, normally, this was going to be the girls' night in, but unfortunately, our beloved UK election contributor Sarah Stook wasn't um, was unable to make it. Fortunately, Joanna and I are still here, and our fabulous Elections Daily editor in chief <laughs> Eric Cunningham is willing to the substitute spot for us. So, thank yep. you, Eric, for saving my butt and letting the show go live. We love you. <laughs> yeah, happy to sub in. <laughs> thank you. All right. So we've got an interesting election-related potpourri to go through today. Um, Johanna's, uh, we've got the panel discussions about the primaries that happened in New York, Kentucky, and the runoff in North Carolina. Uh, we're going to be discussing the election and the ethics of certification when they're not even sure all the votes got counted correctly. We're going to be covering a bit of a debate about D.C. statehood. And then we have Joanna talking about... Um, what was it that you were going to be talking about, Joanna? Uh, the challenger to Mark Warner, um, and then Virginia's congressional, uh, the outcome of Virginia's congressional uh, primaries, and then some of the conventions that are still going to be had, and a brief discussion about um, an increase in candidates with disabilities. I think that's important. So, excellent. Yes, that is very important because it's not just it's not just voters who are living with disabilities, it's candidates and it becomes an issue of visibility and how can we make sure that when disabled candidates run, we can help their, their run more successfully. Yes. And Eric will be covering the surprise win of Madison Cawthorn. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he'll also be going into a DC state, his thoughts about DC statehood more in depth. Mm -hmm. And I will be yeah. I will be covering the current vote by mail ballot fraud uh, allegations that were made by um, Bill Barr, and <laughs> one of the strangest pieces of election trivia I have personally ever stumbled over. Trust me, it's a good one. Oh, wow. yeah. All right, so we're going to go into our panel, and first, the first thing we're going to be discussing is the elections in New York and Kentucky. So, because we'll, you know, Joanna's going to be covering North Carolina runoff in a little bit later. So what are your views on whether or not this was a successful election? Um, do you think New York did well or do you think Kentucky was the surprise was a surprise hit of election season? It seemed like to me that um, that the that the turnout was pretty decent. Um, we're gonna have to wait to see, you know, if you know, when the mail ballots come in, uh, usually election, you know, um, election, uh, I don't know what, what we call it, the uh, election day. I guess this is election week. Um, yes. We, we usually know. Yeah. But it seemed like the turnout was decent and that the results were interesting. So, I mean, at, at least from my perspective, it seemed like um, it seemed like it was a pretty good turnout, um, at least to me. I don't know about Kentucky. Kentucky, we'll have to see how many ballots there because we don't know how many mail ballots are out there. The in-person right. turnout seemed kind of predictably weak, which is probably a good thing. But I know there were some concerns in Louisville and some other areas. I think Kentucky was a hit. I mean, they now granted only 15% of the voters voted in person. 85% voted by mail. And this is not a state known for vote by mail. So that is an absolutely amazing turnout. And one of the things I think is really significant, out of 729,000 plus ballots that were returned, 
only 728 had signature cure or signature matching issues, which is where the wow. signature ballot envelope has to match your official signature on your voter record. And for 0.01% in a state that's not used to doing mostly vote by mail, that's really impressive. And it's a sign that Kentucky really is working on getting elections right, even if the media gave them absolutely zero mercy in the lead up prior to the primary. Right. I think that was a little bit unfair, personally. I think people, especially the stuff going at Mitch McConnell, I know, I I don't know what he has to do with Louisville elections. I mean, it seemed like they did a good job. I think it, Kentucky's kind of an easy target um, until you remember it has a split a split government. It's not like you can blame any one party if things go wrong. Um, Louisville seems generally competent in what they were doing. Um, I, I don't know. I, I thought things had, things went about as well as they should have gone. Ideally, especially in a state where a lot of voters probably might have been hostile to vote by mail, at least if you look by you know, some of the statements from national leaders on on that sort of thing. All right, Joanna, let's hear from you. Um, I have a question about signature matching, and I know that you know with your expertise you can answer this. Um, what signature is it? The signature that you signed your voter registration information with. Um, because I signed mine, I think back in 2011 and with the problems with my hands and a lot of people probably have this, I don't know what my signature looks like now compared to how it looked then. How do they, how do they do this? How do they really compare your signatures? All right. It depends on the state. Um, many states use really sophisticated signature matching software. Other states, um, a lot of people who work in the election office are trained and licensed notary publics. So they can, so their, you know, signature matching is something that they're staring at all day. Um, sometimes they'll have employees come in and as, if, as long as the signature is reasonably close, and then they'll have a set of human eyes take a look at it. It's different for every jurisdiction. But right. one of the things that I do think is important is that states and counties and, you know, mis mis municipalities, <laughs> They need to be able, voters need to know that they can update their signature on their voter, on their voter record at any time during the year. And for mm -hmm. folks who do have limited mobility or there's an issue with their hands, you know, from Parkinson's or arthritis or something, it's okay to say, hey, I need to come in. Can I please update my signature? And that way it's, you know, more peace of mind when you're voting later, especially for mm -hmm. vote by mail that doesn't know. Now, not all states require a signature match. Some right. states, as long as it's a witness signature or it's notarized, they don't really care. But for signature matching states, your signature is the only way that a voter or the people at the election office can tell that you're the one who signed your ballot envelope. Right. So that's that's the, so that's basic signature matching in a nutshell. And yeah. what most states, there is a law saying that if there is a signature mismatch that's flagged, the um, election office does have to notify the voter and have them come in within a certain time frame to correct it. Good. Now, I'm not a big unknown for in-person voting. We are not the signature police. I do not want to be the signature police. And if somebody's getting really hard asked about that, I think that's a little much, especially if it's a voter ID state. It's like you've already mm -hmm. seen the ID. The signature is kind of ancillary at this point. I have another question about that. Um, I don't, I, I can't drive. Um, and, you know, I know this is probably an issue for a lot of people out there. Um, my license is not expired over a year. 
but it is expired. And I got some grief for that the last time I voted in person. Um, and, you know, it's still my photo ID. It still has my name. I can identify my address. Um, should I press when someone says, okay, your ID is expired? Or how does that work? All right. Now, some states don't care if it's expired as long as there's a photo and signature or photo and address. Okay. The southern states are a little more persnickety about that. Um, Florida, for example, your ID must be current and valid. We can't accept expired IDs at all. Okay. Um, I think Georgia has a similar policy, but I'm wondering if there's something else that you would be allowed to use that would be more current or if you just need to see if you can get your license switched to a state ID. Right. That's kind of what I'm thinking, at least, you know, for the time being. I just wanted to ask some questions about that because I know there's probably other people who have similar issues that may be concerned about voting by mail because they're worried that their ballot will be rejected or voting in person. You know, maybe they'll have trouble at the polls. So that's I, a very good question. I appreciate you answering. Oh, happy to. It's what I'm here for. And one of the things I will say about um, most mail ballots don't get rejected. Right. And the most common reasons for rejection are two that there's quite a bit of control over. They either didn't make it back to the election office in time or they didn't get signed at all. Right. As, if, as long as they're returned, as long as they're returned to the election office by the by the due date and they're signed and dated, there shouldn't be too many problems. Yeah. And the election office, again, in most cases, is supposed to notify you about that so you can come in and remedy the situation. Because, right. I mean, there's no, if the ballot gets sent out and returned and then there's a reason it won't count, that was a waste of postage. And election budgets are really tight these days. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's in everybody's best interest to allow voters to fix a mistake or right. a discrepancy. That's good to know. All right, so one of the other things that we're going to be discussing as far as the primaries, uh, New York. So there were quite, there were some interesting snafus in New York, mostly in the boroughs of New York City. And is the New York City election, is the how they do elections in New York City, is that a system that's too big to fail? Or do you think it's, some of the problems were 100% salvageable? I think part of it is they kind of have an archaic voter system that they're, if you compare like the way that they count votes, the way that they, the options that they have available for you to vote up until very recently, they've been more restrictive than probably a lot of Southern states that are kind yeah. of infamous for having relatively strict laws. Like I, I know, for example, primary votes, they're very strict on you have to have uh, changed your party registration by a certain time to be able to six vote in a different primary. What? I think it's six months. Yeah, it, which is, a, I mean, for that can be a lot of time. Like, you might not realize you need to do that until you're at the moment, and then you're stuck voting in a different primary. Um, they, they have issues with, I mean, there's just all sorts of things. You have the the law where you, you a party can choose to run a different candidate that didn't run with them if they get, you know, the if they get the approval from a particular political party. I think that it's uh, Wilson Palooka or Wil something along that line. It's a, it's a very unique rule. They have a lot of unique things, which kind of is, is, a, is a bit of a problem. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they have, they're in, they're in need for some reform. Uh, there's a lot of problems that are just kind of there that people have just kind of ignored for a long time. Well, um, you know, CINYC9, um, one of pretty much the godfather of map Twitter. Um, he was sending me some of the um, ballot return rates 
And one of the things that I learned from him that shocked the hell out of me was that they can't even start counting or tabulating the absentee ballots for another week. Yeah, and I'm just like, and I thought it was bad that we couldn't scan ours in Florida until <laughs> election night at 7 p.m. Good grief. That's a really long time. And it just seems like there could be issues with chain of custody or accidentally losing track of where you put a box of ballots. Mm-hmm. I mean, things happen. It doesn't even have to be anything, you know, negative. Well, it's just yeah. sometimes things happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Even the appearance of something like that in a city like New York, um, just one that, you know, kind of historically has like a long time ago, I think, you know, think 120 years ago where you had the sort of machine politics that, that was able to govern a lot of big cities. Even the fact that there's that vulnerability in there can, can lend some credence to it, whether it's earned or not to, to a challenger who say uh, lost by a few votes and they happen to have lost to a, a powerful incumbent. Like, is that a good, is that a good look? No, the system should at least be have the appearance of competence, like just for that reason alone. And one of the things that I've noticed about the borough return rates is that certain boroughs had fantastic absentee return rates and others were just abysmal. Brooklyn in particular did not have a great return rate, but Staten Islands, I think they're like over 60% returned. Hmm. And I believe that, um, I think the, the, it was either Queens or the Bronx, uh, the Bronx had a pretty good return rate. So why were those return rates so great, whereas the ones in Brooklyn were so terrible? Was there, I mean, and the thing is, I know a lot of the Brooklyn election activists, and this gives, this makes me realize, oh my God, they were right about so many things. I mean, there really isn't, is there support for voters in the boroughs, and does it vary, or are they trying to keep it uniform, and it just isn't getting applied uniformly? Mm -hmm. Maybe density is a little bit of a factor. Staten Island's not nearly as populated, so it'd be easier to you know, to, to get it out to everyone. Whereas, you know, in the Bronx, you have a lot of lower income communities. It's very diverse, a lot of competing interests. Um, you, I mean, you have, among just other things, you have white working class voters, you have Orthodox Jews, you have Latinos, you have uh, black voters, you have a growing Asian community. It's a very diverse area and a lot of different interests they have to work with. Um, I think there might've been also some issues with, with ballot requesting coming in early enough, income, um, just a lot of factors to deal with. Right. All right, this was definitely an interesting discussion. And so I am going to cede the floor to our fabulous Joanna. And Joanna, take it away. Okay, Um, I wanted to review a little uh, of what happened in Virginia on Tuesday. Um, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Gade uh, won the Republican nomination to take on Senator Mark Warner um, in November. And um, Mr. Gade is a very interesting um, candidate. He has a quite a resume, um, and he's a, an amputee. He lost his right leg in Iraq um, after being injured twice, and he won the Bronze Star and the. Uh, um, I know this. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, anyway, he won the Bronze Star, and um, he served on the uh, several councils to all of the presidents, uh, recent presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. Um, he served on you know several, numerous councils for Veterans Affairs. 
dealing with uh, veterans health care, disability, uh, and he has a really interesting take on veteran disability. He believes that the government should stop just paying veterans for their wounds and instead push incentives toward uh, veteran business development and jobs. So he has, you know, an interesting take on disability and he's obviously disabled himself, which is uh, an interesting point about him. And um, he was offered the opportunity to serve on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission by President Trump. And he declined that in 2017. So he's continued to work on veterans affairs and he's a, a professor at American University. Um, he has a doctorate in philosophy. So he's you know, a, a professor of public policy, I believe. Um, and he's a non-interventionist. He believes we need to pull out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and he supports, interestingly, Tim Kaine's War Powers Resolution, um, which you know seeks to avoid further conflict escalation with Iran. Um, so, you know, he's sort of moderate for the current Virginia GOP, uh, and he's highly educated. Um, he's from North Dakota originally. And, um, so it should be an interesting race because Mark Warner is pretty moderate. He's a Democrat, but he's still, he's, he's a moderate, uh, candidate and, and senator. So it should be a, a very interesting race. And, you know, I wanted to note that with um, the nomination of uh, North Carolina, remind me. Uh, Madison um, Cawthorn. Yes, Madison Cawthorn. Uh, with the nomination of Madison Cawthorn, um, there's really beginning, uh, there's more um, disability awareness and visibility of disabled candidates. Um, you have Tammy Duckworth, you have uh, Greg Abbott, of course, who's the governor of Texas. Um, now you have Madison Cawthorn, who was nominated in North Carolina, and you have um, uh, get Daniel Gade um, as you know a major party candidate statewide in, in Virginia. Now it's notable that a Republican has not won statewide in Virginia since 2009. So it's been a long time. Um, but you know, I thought it was important to to note that there's increased disability awareness. Um, at least, you know, with candidates, um, there's been a big push recently for, you know, disability rights and advocacy. So, um, yeah, I think he'll be an interesting candidate, be interesting to watch. Um, and so I was going to give a quick rundown of the the turnout and the the results of the congressional district. Uh, uh, the congressional district um, primaries. And overall, 
Um, Democrats requested 118,000 ballots, and as of Tuesday morning, 66,000 had been returned. Republicans requested 59,000 ballots, and as of Tuesday morning, uh, 27,000 had been returned. So that's kind of the situation with the ballots. Um, first district was uh, Kasim Rashid. Uh, he defeated Angie, um, uh, Vanji, I'm sorry, Vanji Williams for the Democratic nomination in the first district. Um, we'll take on Robert Whitman. Um, Rashid is an immigrant and he is Muslim. So it's kind of a, a groundbreaking ground breaking race there. Um, in the fourth district, Don McEachin uh, will face off um, to whomever is chosen on the June 27th primary as the Republican nominee. Um, in the second district, uh, Taylor, Scott Taylor, who was defeated by Gade, um, will go back and take on Elaine Loria. And uh, Scott Taylor has kind of a, uh, he has some baggage uh, from two of his campaign staffers being convicted um, or indicted uh, for election fraud, basically. Uh, they circulated and peti circulated petitions in 2018 trying to get a third party uh, <laughs> candidate on the ballot. And um, so, yeah, he has some baggage and he'll be facing Elaine Loria, which she's a, a really good, really good candidate. She's, um, by all accounts, she's done a great job in Congress. And um, in the third district, you have Bobby Scott, who's been in for 27 years. Um, now John Colick, uh, who's a counterterrorism expert, is going to face off against him in the fall. Bobby Scott is extremely popular. Um, you know, that's that race is kind of a gimme. Um, in the fifth district, which has had a very interesting race that we've covered quite a bit with Bob Good, um, uh, the candidate selection will take place on July 18th, which is the same for the seventh district. Um, for whoever's going to face off with Abigail Spanberger, who I covered in one of my articles. So, um, and in the night, there is no candidate. Um, there, a convention took place on May 2nd, and the Democrats did not select a candidate, so there is no candidate. Uh, in the 6th, we have Ben Klein, this is where I live, um, and Nicholas Betts, is going to be the Democratic nominee for um, the race in November. Um, now in the ninth, of course, the incumbent is Morgan Griffith and he'll continue to serve in Congress. He has no challenger. Mm -hmm. um, so to be fair, yeah. he's a libertarian to be fair, but it's a, he's yeah. kind of a wacky candidate. If you want to see the article, we have one on Elections Daily. I believe it was Andrew Payne. Oh, no, it was Zach Peter. Sorry, he wrote an article about the, the kind of weirdo libertarian. Uh, right. He used to be a Democrat, and then he dropped out, and now he's a Libertarian. Um, yeah. But no major party competition there. I just thought it was worth it because we have an article about the race. So Right. Yeah. 
So that's pretty much what happened in Virginia on Tuesday. And um, so we've got some interesting, interesting candidates, um, interesting races to keep an eye on. Um, I'm interested really to see how this Scott Luria race plays out. That I think that should be interesting. And of course, Gade and Warren, because Gade is really, you know, he seems to be a little more moderate for Virginia GOP. Now he does advocate for pulling all of our trade out of China, which is kind <laughs> of, um, that's kind of uh, far-fetched. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. He's how a not right train wreck like Corey Stewart. <laughs> exactly. Yes. He's not a Corey Stewart. So it should should go a little bit better. Um, and uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to watch. All right. And speaking of trains, they, they, they're supposed to go on schedule. So let's take it away to Eric, who will be discussing. Thank you, by the way, Joanna. You're awesome. We thank will be discussing. Uh, Eric's going to be discussing uh, Madison Cawthorn. And he's also going to be giving us some of the pros and cons of BC statehood. And then we will go to panel. And then I'll be going doing my little soundbite. Eric, take it away. Awesome. So one of the races we were following, um, we did a four-hour live stream of the primary election results. Um, you can find it on, on the YouTube channel. But one of the races we were covering was NC11. It was projected to be a pretty competitive Republican primary. Um, the two candidates there, uh, Mark Meadows obviously dropped out. He's now uh, involved in the Trump, uh, Trump administration. And he dropped out at a point where no other candidates who were already filing at a lower-level race could file for his race. So basically he wanted to, to set it up so that his chosen candidate would run and that there wouldn't be a credible Democrat or a credible Republican to oppose his chosen candidate, which in this case was Linda Bennett. Uh, she's the vice chair of the Haywood County Republican party. Uh, it's a county adjacent to uh, where Asheville's County is. If you're familiar with Asheville um, mountain city, pretty liberal by North Carolina, especially by North Carolina standards. Yeah. Um, the other major candidate in the race was Madison Cawthorn who had a, who kind of came onto the scene with a really impressive campaign ad that kind of showcased him as a younger leader. He's 24 years old. He'll be 25 when he's sworn in when he runs the race because this really isn't going to be a competitive race outside the general, or outside the primary. Um, but he finished second to Linda Bennett in the primary, but they finished un below the runoff threshold, so the race goes to a runoff. Um, surprisingly, North Carolina actually had pretty decent turnout. We had a 12% of voters came out um, who could have voted in this election uh, voted. Uh, 45,000 votes, and Madison Cawthorn kind of shocked the North Carolina political world by winning 66% of the votes. Uh, he won every county in the district except for Rutherford, which is only half in the district. He won uh, He won Buncombe, he won Henderson, Jackson, uh, the biggest counties in the district. He won Haywood, which is Linda Bennett's home county. Um, so the obvious question here is what happened? Um, Linda Bennett was endorsed by Mark Meadows, and she was endorsed by Donald Trump. She paraded her Trump endorsement around 24-7. It was the first thing on her website. If you go to her issues page, it's the first thing on her issues page is that she was supported by Trump. Beyond that, she didn't seem to have really a compelling message as to why she should be the next congresswoman from North Carolina's 11th district. This is a predominantly um, rural look, this is a predominantly rural district, aside from obviously the city of Asheville and a college town. Um but it's predominantly conservative. It voted for Trump by a, a pretty substantial margin. Um, so you would think the endorsement would be enough. Madison Cawthorn didn't have this endorsement. What he did have was he had a good story, um, and he had actual political talent. Um, he's from Hendersonville. 
which is the second biggest county in the district, Henderson County. Um, he's been there his whole life. His family's been there for generations. Uh, he was going to go into the military and then got into a car accident. He was the passenger, lost the use of both of his legs. So he's wheelchair bound. Uh, he didn't let that get him down. He's a motivational speaker. He runs a business. Um, so he had a pretty good story. And he also had a pretty compelling message, just conservative values for the district. Nothing particularly radical, nothing particularly Trumpy. Uh, obviously, he supports Donald Trump like most Republicans do. But Trump was not the centerpiece of the campaign, partly because it could not be, and also partly because he had a good story. Rather than spending all the time talking about why Trump should have endorsed him, he talked about why he's the best candidate for the district. And so when he gets sworn in, he'll be the youngest congressional um, uh, member ever. Um, he'll be 25 years old, very young. Uh, North Carolina Republicans see a bright future with him. Uh, he's already being floated for statewide office. Uh, I know this from discussions with other Republicans. Um, but so he's generally seen as a quality candidate, and that's a good thing for a region in North Carolina that's kind of been under the under the radar for a long time. You know, you had Heath Schuler, who was most known for a primary challenge against Nancy Pelosi. Um, but if he goes to some sort of statewide prominence, that's that'd be really good for Western North Carolina. Um, uh, now his challenger, I, I, I will mention his challenger. He's a Democrat, Mo Davis. I know some progressives are excited for him, mainly because the district has Asheville in it now. I'm sorry to break it to you, but Mo Davis will not be winning this race. He is running on an incredibly left-wing platform, Green New Deal, um, public option, gun control. In North Carolina, that's a no-go. Not even the Democrats here want gun control. Um, he has some sort of credibility as the former chief prosecutor at Guantanamo Bay, but now spends most of his time on Twitter kind of complaining that Donald Trump has blocked him, um, and that that's illegal, apparently. So... You're not talking about the best candidate here, but even if they had a good candidate, this seat wouldn't be competitive at this point, right? So it's kind of a given that he wins in November, especially given the lean of the district. Um, but definitely a good night for North Carolina Republicans and a good night for Republicans who are convinced there might be a future beyond just whatever Trump is doing at the moment. Um, you've had candidates like Cam, Mike Garcia in California. Uh, Thomas Massey won his primary resoundingly in Kentucky. Part of that was candidate quality, but part of it is they genuinely like him up there. Um, so we have that. The other thing in the news today was DC statehood. People have opinions on DC statehood. I have opinions on DC statehood. Um, I'll, I'll be charitable and give the pros and cons. Um, so this bill is supported party line by the democratic party. The only person to vote no was Colin Peterson, who represents a very, very Republican district in Minnesota and is in a very contentious race. Uh, all the other house Democrats supported this bill, um, which would make DC a state. It would carve out the National Mall and a few other buildings, which would become the new federal district, and that would essentially become the capital. Um, that's where I find problems with this. Is and the pros is that obviously District of Columbia residents would have uh, two senators and a House member in addition to the presidential vote, um, and they'd have more control over their city. Um, the problem is there are so many logistical and and juris uh, like jurisdictional problems here, right? So this federal enclave, which would be inside the District of Columbia, would have no residents aside from the president and the first lady and, and the president's family. Um, this is a problem because constitutionally, the, the federal district is guaranteed, the seat of government is guaranteed three electoral votes. So in essence, the president of the district, uh, the president of the United States would have three free electoral votes. Um, that might not seem like a big deal, but in an election that's close, that's a really big deal. And mm -hmm. it's not going to be repealed, um, mainly because constitutional amendments are absurdly difficult to repeal. Another problem 
is that I would have very little issue if you were to just go ahead and give District of Columbia representation in Congress, but keep it as a federal district, because the point of the district is to be divorced from state governments, to give Congress right. a little bit of control over where the seat of government is, right? The problem is the, the federal enclave that will effectively be the capital will be effectively bound to whatever D.C. wants, right? Uh, its utilities are going to come from the district, which would be a state. Its police force is going to come from the district. Transportation would come from the district. All of our foreign embassies would be in a, would be in the district, which would be a state now. So they would be in a single state, all of our embassies. A lot of government buildings would be in a single state. Um, from a, from a, just a, a jurisdictional level, that's bizarre. That's really bizarre. Um, we would have a mini capital with everything else being in a single state, which by accord have a little bit more influence than other states, even though it's fairly small. It's only around 60 miles of land. Um, so that's that's one issue um, that I see with it. I think there are solutions, which would be, for example, a constitutional amendment, giving them two senators, giving them a congressman, but keeping it as the federal district. At that point, they'd have everything that the state would have, which would solve the representation issue. Because in theory, this is an issue of representation. The other big one, which I do not think people are talking about, and they should, is that if the District of Columbia becomes a state, the very first thing they will do is pass a commuter tax. Um, they have wanted to do this for decades. Congress has banned them from doing it. They decided to pass one in 2005, and it got struck down because the Congress controls the district. Ultimately, all of the, the home rule that the District of Columbia has, the city council and the mayor, they still ultimately answer to Congress because Congress controls the federal district. So the first thing they will do is pass a commuter tax. This will greatly impact residents in Maryland and Virginia. So the issue of taxation without representation will go from the district doesn't have a vote to the District of Columbia now has the seat of government, can hold entry people entering the district hostage, can hold the seat of the federal government hostage if they wanted to say shut down utilities because they didn't like something that was going on, they could do it. Um, but also residents in Virginia and Maryland would pay a substantial portion of their income tax or of commuter fees just to work in the district. Um, commuter taxes are unpopular, and historically, this has been an issue for residents of Maryland and Virginia. I think Republicans could have a little bit of an inroad in Northern Virginia if they made this an issue, if they pointed out this would be literally a billion, you know, over a billion dollars funneled from Maryland and Virginia into the district. Um, that's, that's one thing. On the other hand, the residents of the district have not had a say in their own affairs for, well, forever, pretty much, aside from the last 50 years of home rule. Um, most of them are, uh, it's still a majority uh, minority area. There's a growing white population, but it's still plurality black. Um, and they've just, it, I get that side as well. I just have the issues from a jurisprudential standpoint, um, from a, from a, from a jurisdictional standpoint, it would make more sense to have a cohesive capital that has all the benefits of being the capital and also has representation rather than having this little weird little mini enclave in the middle of a district that doesn't have any people, that has electoral votes, that's still ultimately bound to whatever the, the capital, which would be D.C., the broader city, which is now a state, but still a city, would have issues with. I don't know. Um, you can comment if you want to or reply to me on Twitter. I mentioned a compromise, which would be the constitutional amendment. There's other options like retrocession or virtual retrocession, which has been proposed. It was actually a thing where back in the 1800s, you could vote as if you were a resident of Maryland or Virginia, but you'd still live in the district, right? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, another thing they could do, another option if they wanted, would be to get rid of federal income tax in the district. Yeah, um, that would that that would at least solve the if it, if it's a taxation issue. I think that would mm -hmm. solve it, wouldn't it, Eric? Yeah, but there's competing issues, right? I think the issue for the government is they want a commuter tax because if they become a state, they need revenue to be able to operate. They'd lose the federal subsidy that being the capital offers, and the right. easiest way to get back that the only way to get that back is a commuter tax, um, which historically huge issue. You look at the '90s, the last time we had a big debate over statehood. Um, Northern Virginia representatives were irate over the possibility of this. And these, there were some Democrats that liked this at the point. Jerry Moran, um, uh, was very, was irate on the floor. He, he, he basically said that the district was going to be stealing money from his, his constituents to pay for whatever they wanted. Um, so it's a multifaceted issue. I don't appreciate people who treat this as one side as if you oppose statehood as the solution, that statehood is the only solution. There's nothing else that can be done. And if you oppose statehood, you're a bad person who wants to suppress votes. I don't think that's constructive. Right. I think, you know, given, given how well DC handled the last election. Mm -hmm. That's I another think, issue. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure I would want Muriel Bowser as governor. Correct. I mean, I, I didn't want to talk about corruption, but historically when we have entered, when we have entered states into the union, right, there have been pre-existing standards that we've assumed that you've had, right? You've probably had a competent government. Um, in Utah, we didn't allow them to become a state until they banned polygamy. That was specific. And that was a specific issue to Utah. No other state has a ban on polygamy like that, um, like they do. And they just they just wanted to repeal it recently. I don't know if they did or not, but um, I don't trust the government of the District of Columbia to handle their own corruption investigations. Uh, those federal investigations would immediately become state level investigations. Ultimately, you would have Muriel Bowser and whoever is on the city council policing themselves. And I don't know if they've been proven they're capable of doing that. I don't want to, I don't want to look at it from that way because then it sounds like we're not trusting the voters in that district, but it's, it's trusting the government in a, in a town where it's, I mean, there's not a whole lot of options as to what you're going to vote for. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. realistically speaking, and I would be remiss to point out that the reason most Republicans oppose statehood for DC is that it would be two democratic senators. That's the reason most Democrats would support it. And most Republicans would oppose it ultimately. Um, but it's a multifaceted issue. There's reasons on both sides. There are legitimate constitutional hurdles. The, the amendment that gives them the electoral votes would have to go, or the president would just, just have to agree not to vote. I'm not even sure how a voting district would work in a capital with no people living in it. Um, yeah. There's just a whole bunch of, I think this creates, this specific proposal creates more problems than it does answers, at least to me. Yeah. Um, I, I tried to uh, think about it from the perspective of, and you know, this is really simple to me. I tried to think of it, you know, from the per perspective of, okay, say you're a Democrat. Well, then if DC goes Republican, then you now have your federal capital in a Republican state, kind of like Republicans have to view it as having their federal capital in a democratic state. Mm -hmm. It's just odd. I, I think the constitutional amendment proposal is the best solution, um, you know, so that they get representation. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's by far the best solution uh, rather than statehood. Statehood does present a lot of legal problems, a lot of jurisdictional problems. I, I agree that, you know, that's statehood's 
not a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to think that I don't think people should have representation. I'm actually pretty radical. Right. In that I think I think every territory should become a state. I think Puerto Rico should be a state, yeah. Virgin Islands, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands, and American Samoa if they ultimately want it, which they really don't right now because that would have a whole host of legal issues. Right. The problem is D.C. is the capital. Yeah. In the United States, being the capital means that you're going to have some federal control. Right. It's the federal district. It, it's specifically assigned in the Constitution for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't an issue that exists in other countries because the capital's jurisdiction is inter- is is the same. It's just a city and a province that also happens to have the capital. Here it would be a city that's also a state that's also on cl- that's also surrounding the actual capital and would assume basically the the role of a capital, but it's not the capital. It's just yeah. around this little. It, it's just. I get that. This is the easiest option in theory. If if it's constitutional, which it may not be, it's the easiest solution. Yeah. But like a lot of things that are easy, it's not necessarily the best solution or the one that makes the most sense legally or constitutionally. Right. And it'd be so much easier to pass Puerto Rico statehood or yeah. US Virgin Island statehood, Guam. Um, all these places could be states. Um, but um, I mean, I, I just think there are, are legitimate issues of people who are too willing to throw under the bus because ultimately it does devolve to who who those two senators and the representative go to. Right. That's all people are going to think of about this. Not going to think about what it actually means to have a federal enclave inside of a, of a state. State. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I noticed that somebody yeah. the Vatican city model and they, I'm, I'm not sure somebody pointed out that the Vatican city was a so- was its own sovereign country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a country. It's, that would not work as an analogy to DC, to Maryland, and Virginia. Yeah, they have a functioning economy. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. who, the, like, for uh, maybe the U.S. would have it if the National Mall somehow had a functioning economy. But I really, that's still tied with the district. The Vatican mm-hmm. is surrounded by, a, I mean, it's walled off. Yeah, right. they they rely on Rome for some infrastructure, but they don't pay for it. That, that that's another thing. The federal government's going to have to pay DC for its utilities. You think DC is going to want to go cheap on that? <laughs> God, no. I mean, what what is the government going to say to DC's price? Uh, no, we'll get it from Virginia. No, you can't. You're surrounded by the district. Like, there are so many issues, and once it becomes a state, it can't unbecome a state. Like, once you open this bottle up, the only solution is to either you live with it or you move the capital somewhere else. Wow. And that would just completely defeat the entire pro- the the entire thing yeah. accordingly. Because let's be honest, if there wasn't a capital there, yeah. you wouldn't half the jobs would vanish overnight. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they move to wherever the new capital goes to. Right. Um, yeah, this is complicated. This is a very complicated issue. Yeah. I mean, I can't think of another country or even another county or a lower level judicial thing that has a similar structure to what is being proposed here. Um, I don't know. So there's not even a precedent to compare to. And that's... Yeah. I mean, can you... You never want to be the yeah. first person to do anything this is this might be one of those instances yeah like you go to ottawa right if you go to ottawa canada that's the capital yeah it's the capital but it's also a city and it's in a in a province it's just also the capital and it's not there's not like a little it's not like the little you know the, the capitol hill in canada is an enclave that's surrounded by by ottawa right um it's not like the people who live in ottawa you know live in the capital and then they they only live in ottawa like it, there's there's other I can't think of a similar s- structure anywhere else in the world. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means you really you don't want to mess this up because once you make something a state, it, You're stuck with it. yeah, you are stuck with it forever. 
Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Sorry. No, actually, this is going to tie into some of the stuff Joanna was talking about at, uh, from our last podcast, um, the certification of the Georgia election results. Now, there has been clear and convincing evidence that the ballot scanners in certain counties were not reading marks correctly. And one of the things that I was really surprised is that Georgia, in for the most part, the election directors in the counties are not interested in going back and manually reviewing some of those ballots. They just remade the ballots to what are considered acceptable um, optical scan marks, and they just let them go through, but they won't do any manual adjudication. Is it ethical to certify the election knowing that there will be challenges and there could be some serious issues regarding the accuracy of the results? Because that's when an election is officially over is when the results are certified. Is this over? I'm not one to talk. I'm oh, sorry. You go ahead. You go ahead. I, I wouldn't think uh, it would be ethical to uh, to certify knowing that there are errors. Um, I, I don't think that's fair to the voters. I, I don't think it presents a, a good model. Uh, you know, I, I don't think um, I don't think it ensures voters that when they go and cast their ballot or when they mail in their ballot, it's going to be accepted accurately and counted and yeah i just don't think it's i don't think it's good to certify with you know knowing there are errors i don't think it's a good practice Mm -hmm. i mean yeah let i mean for me at least i think it's not it's not only not fair to the voters it's not fair to the candidates who yeah right a, a lot of these primaries are close some of them are for legislative offices some of them are for local local races but everyone deserves to know the fact that they either won or lost fairly and the voters deserve to know that the elections were conducted fairly and right. were certified fairly um that's that's what kind of you know helps keep the system working i have been troubled by what i've heard coming out of georgia um just just because it just it seemed like there's this reluctance to go towards any sort of mail voting there's yeah. this reluctance to go towards anything that could be resembled as benefiting the Democratic Party, which uh-huh. I get if you're a Republican, but I care more about the election being fair than right. I care about whether or not it means more Democrats are going to vote. I mean, realistically, I, well, I would hope a Democrat would think the same. Yeah. Um, but it's like, ultimately, I just want the election to be fair. I don't yeah. want there to be some sort of situation where we're in November and we have a similar problem and it's for a presidential election or a or a congressional election. Some of these races could be close. Or for anything of relative importance at all, there's two Senate races on the ballot. Um, there could be a difference between a race going to a runoff or a race being won straight up. It could be a difference between a candidate making a runoff or not, um, because there's a lot of candidates running. Like mm-hmm. People deserve to know that the election results are fair or legitimate and were conducted and certified uh, based on accurate information, not because someone wants the election to be over. Right. They go through and check everything. I'm yeah. so happy that 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 seriously. Thank you, Eric. You just you made, made this little ballot fairy's heart very happy. <laughs> All right, so I will be discussing one last thing, and then we will open it up if we have time for a little bit of Q and A. So mm-hmm. uh, recently, Bill Barr was parroting the Trump party line about the about foreign countries creating an influx of fake vote by mail ballots. Is it possible? Absolutely. Is it probable? Not really. 
Um, the logistics of printing mail ballots. Designing just the paper ballot alone requires two to three dozen separate computer databases. There's probably another four to five databases just for the ballot envelopes. So a foreign government would have to get the voter lists of the people who they know will be voting by mail, and they have to make district-specific ballots for all of those people and still keep them looking like the ballot that's going to be out there during the actual election. There are far easier ways to attack U.S. elections than doing that. <laughs> One of the things that I can tell you is ballots have an account I'm not going to tell you where on the ballot it is, but just about everyone has them and where the mark is located is heavily dependent on whoever, whichever company is printing those ballots and whichever election vendor is in charge of the election management software. So it's not that it could never happen. It's just that there's better ways to do it. And if you're an attacker, you really want to get some bang for your buck. This ain't it. This mm -hmm. will cost more than this will cost more than it will benefit you. And one of the things I found out interestingly about the provisional ballot pro um, part of the Help America Vote Act, the concept was developed by none other than Heritage Foundation and Judicial Watch's Hans von Spakovsky. Oh. I was not expecting the cartoon <laughs> villain of American elections to be the guy that came up with the provisional balloting laws in the U.S. So that was, I mean, like seriously, I just about dropped my teeth when I read that. It was like Hans von Spakovsky. Did, I mean, I didn't, I'm not that drunk, am I? And so <laughs> there it was in the Help America Vote Act. So the next time anybody asks for a provisional ballot, just remember, you can thank Hans von Spakovsky. And <laughs> I thought about it, I was like, oh my God, really? Like, I mean, he's actually, he's actually been very nice to me. It's um, his partner that I've had the um, occasional internet scuffle with. So, ah. yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got about 10 minutes left. And we are going to open it up to Q&A. Um, does anybody have any questions out there? I think someone in the chat had mentioned, um, I'll wait until we see something more, but someone had mentioned um, Puerto Rico um, as yeah. being a, a state that could be a state. I'll just say from my perspective, I know that the, interestingly, Puerto Rico is generally seen as a state that would go democratic if it was, um, if it was made a state, right? Right. The problem is, you, you, aside from D.C., which we know what it would vote, vote like, you can't really assume that Puerto Rico would do that because the statehood party there is basically led by Republicans at this point. Uh, Jennifer Gonzalez, who's an excellent, their delegate, is an excellent delegate. She's doing a very good job. She's a Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe their House Speaker is a Republican. Their Governor is a Republican. They do it as members of the Progressive, the New Progressive Party. It's the anti-statehood party that are that are the Democrats there, um, uniformly. Um, the state, the New Progressive Party, which is the statehood party, has a mix of Republicans and Democrats in it. But at this point, it seems like the Republicans kind of have control of most of the levers. I'm actually not of the opinion that those parties go away if if um, if it becomes a state. Like they already are pretty strongly established parties. Why would they just kind of vanish overnight and just vote for Republicans and Democrats when they have a system that kind of already reflects what they think? Um, right. I think that's and for that the Republican platform supports Puerto Rico statehood. So I don't see why it would be an issue. I know Jim Rich. Uh, from Idaho was like, if they become a state, there'll be two Democratic senators. I wouldn't be so sure. Their their no. delegates are Republican. It's a known Republican. She's she's openly in the Republican caucus. Um, they're also socially conservative. They're mm -hmm. pretty socially conservative. Um, I've I've just picked that up from different things online, and you know, um, so I yeah, I think you're right. I think and that, their um, governor, yeah, 
Ricardo yeah. Rossello, the former governor, um, I remember watching him. He did a speech at AEI about how they were reforming and modernizing the government so it would be smaller and more effective. Yeah. Um, like he's a Democrat, but he's he's about more conservative. He's about on the Joe Manchin scale of things, if not even yeah. a little bit further right than that. Like obviously you have, you know, your there's the, the mayor of San Juan's a socialist, basically, but right. it's not the same thing. You can't just assume that a system that's worked where they speak a different language, but where their citizens would be that. Now, do they want to become a state? I don't know. The the initiatives are always done poorly. The referendums are always worded terribly. The choices are vague. Um, people don't show up to vote. Um, so that's an issue. But I wouldn't see an issue with that happening personally as a Republican. Um, now, one of the things that I've um, I've got quite a few followers who are in Puerto Rico. And one of the things that I think is kind of a pain for Puerto Ricans who are at, over the age of maybe 10 or 11 is that Puerto Rican birth certificates cannot be used as a form of ID when trying to get government issued ID. Huh. I think that there was an issue with them fraud like years and years ago. The only birth certificates that are actually accepted by the US federal government as identification were done after 2010 and those kids aren't voting yet. So wow. that's another, that could be, so one of the reasons I would support statehood for Puerto Rico is there might be an e there might be an easier way for Puerto Ricans who come over the mainland to be able to get ID because they can't use their driver's license or their birth certificate for the most unless they're very young that won't be acceptable get while trying to get a real ID say on like on the mainland. Mm -hmm. Right. So from a purely logistics issue, statehood actually does make sense, but it's you know it just depends on whether or not the voters would actually go for it. But I yeah. do think that. Puerto could be a state and do, I think they do just fine because they've already got decent infrastructure and they kind of have, I mean, they know what they I think they know, they at least have some idea of what they're going to be going up against. Yeah. They have a, they have a legitimate city level structure. They have a legislature with two houses. They have a governor, they have other executive offices. Um, they have mayors for each of their cities and in terms of government. It's very well structured. Obviously there's issues with corruption um, as, as many places have, but it's right. easier to root out when you have multiple municipalities to deal with than it is to, you know, when you just have one to deal with. Um, and obviously I think like, if you look at Florida, Republicans have done a pretty good job of appealing to Hispanic voters um, in Florida. Yeah. You know, Rick Scott did a very good job of appealing to the Puerto Rican community was very supportive of them. I uh, worked closely with Jennifer Gonzalez. Um, I don't think it's a political loser. And I think honestly, if they want to be a state, they should be. There's so many people there. It's, and they've been here for so long and they're citizens. Um, it's really hard to say no, at least in my opinion. But the question is if they want it. Um, and the referendums are always weird. It's sometimes it's three choices and you need one choice to get 50% to win. Or, or other times it's you have two choices, but the, the side that um, but the anti-statehood side decided they're not going to win. So they just don't show up. Like aside, that's a personal pet peeve of mine. I hate that strategy. I think it delegitimizes elections and I think it should be ignored. Uh, if you if you don't show up to vote, I don't really care what your opinion on the matter is. If it's a protest, vote against it. Like don't just don't show up because you think you're going to lose. Yeah. Um, and for that matter, there are other yeah. Sorry. That's oh, okay. I'm sorry. You look like you're going to say something, Joanna. Oh no, I was just um I was looking and uh, I noticed that we just mostly had uh, comments. We don't you know. We don't have a lot of mm -hmm. questions. We just mostly have comments um, about Puerto Rican statehood. Mm -hmm. um, go ahead. 
Any good trolls? No, 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 no good trolls. No, yeah, the only time those scared them off. Yeah, the only time those trolls actually showed up was for like one thing, and that was when they were going after Joe for not wanting a Nazi on campus. Oh. And all they all they accomplished was that they just gave more views to the stream because oh, uh, I deleted all their comments. So they really didn't do anything, and there were only like five of them. So <laughs> yeah, all's well that ends well. Yeah. All right, so Joanna, the comments. Um, the comments are uh, from Oscar Lover 100. Uh, do we know who that is? Uh, I'm not uh, familiar with him, but I've seen him comment before. Okay, um, all He's right. most familiar with Puerto Rico. Like, for example, here's a comment right here. Um, the politics of Puerto Rico aren't the same as the U.S. Or I'll also just say the mainland. Oh, Drew wants a question. <laughs> all right, you got a few minutes, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Drew. I, I do think the parties will survive there in a different manner. Um, just they already have structures. I don't think they're just going to vanish overnight. They just adapt to the different structure. Um, the the new the new progressive party there is the more statehood party. They're more fiscally conservative, more open to conservatives. And then the other one, um, I can't remember the name, but they're they're the establishment party. There, they want to stay as a territory. Um, and they mostly, they almost universally are, de are Democrats, oddly enough. Um, like the membership of the, the new progressive one is, um, it, it's 50-50 in theory, but again, Republicans seem to be running the show right now. Whereas the other one is basically 100% of its officers, elected candidates. Oh, here we go. Here's a question. Oh, Virginia, why are some states resistant to assigning the early vote by precinct? Drew, there is a very simple mechanical explanation for this one. When the certain ballot scanners are used for early voting, they do not aggregate totals daily for early voting by precinct simply because the scanner just can't handle it. That's really it. There's, it ha it's, not, it's not necessarily a political move. It just has to do with the capabilities of the scanner. So that's something that they have to go back and they discover during reconciliation, which is like the post-election day, you know, let's get all of our ish together. Yeah. So that's why they don't allocate early vote by precinct. It's because their ballot scanners just aren't, they won't do that. You can't, if they're configured for early voting mode, they will not total by precinct. That's just how it works. Wow. If I recall right, I think Maryland is pretty notorious for issues with early vote assigning. Uh, I know yeah. for people complain well, about that when they're drawing maps. They use the specific ballot scanner that most of those counties use is that is the ballot scanner scanner in question that I'm talking about. It just if it's early voting, you cannot configure it to tabulate by precinct. I think we got one more question here yeah. from uh, Oscar Lever 100. Okay, why is Polk County Republican? Um. They've pretty much always been like, if, yeah. if the place goes blue, I'll drop dead of shock. And what was the other part of the question? Oh, uh, what are what are your thoughts on where results will land this year? Um, right now, I honestly don't know. I have not seen many signs for Democratic candidates in Polk County, and you know, I've spent you know with the elections, I get a lot of information. And so, although I think a lot of Florida could be toss up. I don't know if Polk County is going to be tossed up. I still think that they're leaning R right now. I think some of the optimism is because it's so close to Orlando. There's this idea yeah. that it would kind of spill over into Orlando. But from what I've heard, a lot of it is rural. A lot of it is 
is yeah. not really connected to Orlando in any real sense. No, it's like and that and the area around um, the divide between Orlando and the very northeasternmost point of Polk County is um, Haines City is like the Haines City area. Haines City is predominantly Spanish speaking and the vast majority of the folks who live there are non-party affiliated. So it's very difficult to tell how they're going to vote. And it, depending on whether or not they're, they've, they're able to vote in the primary, you may not know what's going to happen until November. Was this the one with the green, the county with the green party having a big presence no, or was that's Hillsborough Temple Terrace Hillsborough. actually has a, small, has a small, but mighty um, green party contingent. And that's actually <laughs> about, um, 10 miles West of Polk County on the, on the West <laughs> And they're and they're sort of in they're sort of in between Tampa and Polk County. It's like this little rural area right there. But yes, they have a ton of green, they actually have a significant Green Party contingent, <laughs> and they do well in municipals. All right, so it looks like we are exactly at an hour. Thank you to our fabulous co-panelists, Joanna and Eric. Thanks so much for doing this with me. Yep, thanks and for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for the fabulous audience. You had some great questions. Thanks for no trolling. Love you. And so hopefully we will see you on the next Beyond the Spin, if Eric lets us do one more. <laughs> Y'all have a great Friday night, and don't do anything we wouldn't do. Take care. Bye. Bye.